You can turn with me in your Bibles to the book of John. So we work our way through John's Gospel. We're in the Upper Room Discourse, chapter 14. Our focus will be verses 1 to 6. Remember, Jesus has announced many times in his earthly ministry with reference to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, that he must suffer, that he must die, and that he must be raised again. And here immediately in our context, he mentions this specifically in chapter 13 with reference to his departure. Verse 33, he says, little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. So now I say to you. So he takes this opportunity to encourage, to exhort, and to prepare the disciples for ministry after his death, resurrection, and ascension on high. It will be their task to go, therefore, to make disciples of the nations, to baptize them, and to teach them to observe all that Christ has commanded. And we see that taken up in the book of Acts. So I want to read chapter 14, verses 1 to 6. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Amen. Well, let us pray. Our gracious God and Holy Father, we thank you for the, the, the God-breathed word. We thank you that from Genesis to Revelation, we have your, your word, your mind, your will revealed to us in the Old and New Testament. We thank you for your providence and your preservation of these scriptures and uh, having kept them for our use and benefit here in the 21st century. We pray now for the ministry of the Holy Spirit who gave us that word, that he would come and guide us in our understanding of it, that you would uh, impact and affect our hearts in a positive way and further conform us under the image of your blessed Son. As well, God, we pray for any and all who are dead in their trespasses and sins, that they would see in this passage the way of access to the Father is through the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And may they, by grace, believe on him and know the joy of being found in him. Forgive us now for all of our sin and all unrighteousness, and we pray through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, as I said, Jesus is getting ready to depart from the disciples. He will, again, obviously be raised from the dead and spend some further time with them. But then he ascends on high and from the, uh, his uh, station or position of glory at the right hand of the Father, he continues to bless, encourage, and use his disciples to propagate the glorious gospel and to see the church of Christ extended on the earth. But in this particular context, we know that the disciples are troubled. Jesus certainly knows that, so he addresses them accordingly in verse 1. So this morning, I want to look at verses 1 to 6 under two considerations. First, the preparation of heaven for the disciples in verses 1 to 3. Jesus speaks about his departure, but it's not a departure where it's going to terminate with him in the grave. It's a departure as a means for access to the Father's house and to prepare it for their eventual coming. And then secondly, we'll notice the access to heaven through the Lord. So the preparation of heaven and then the access to heaven. But note first with reference to the preparation, he does two things here. He first gives them an exhortation in verse 1 and then an encouragement in verses 2 and 3. But notice the exhortation in verse 1, let not your heart be troubled. Why do you think he would say that? Because most likely their hearts are troubled. Why would their hearts be troubled? Because he's announced to them that from among them, one of them is going to betray him. And remember in the parallel accounts in the synoptic gospels, after Jesus announces the betrayal, the disciples, each one say, Lord, is it I? So certainly this is a perplexing and troublesome time for them in light of the fact that the announcement of the betrayal has been made. Judas has now departed. But not only that, Jesus has told Peter that he's going to deny him. Again, it probably would flood the hearts of the other disciples, not simply that Peter would do that, but that the potential for doing that is even in their own hearts. 
If when he announces the betrayal, they ask, Lord, is it I? Certainly the lesser than the betrayal, the denial, is certainly in the wheelhouse of the disciples as well. And then thirdly, why might they be troubled? Because the Lord whom they love, the Lord whom they worship, the Lord whom they follow is going to be away from them in a little while. In fact, the next day, he is going to be given up into godless hands. He's going to be crucified on the cross and he's going to be laid in the tomb. So there are three really powerful reasons as to why these men could possibly be troubled at this juncture. And the word is simple. It means to cause inward turmoil. It means to stir up, to disturb, to unsettle, or to throw into confusion. And interestingly enough, we see it used of our Lord Jesus Christ in the immediate context. Notice in chapter 13 at verse 21, when Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit. As well in chapter 12 at verse 27, with reference to the announcement of the hour. Verse 27, now my soul is troubled and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. We see it also at the graveside of Lazarus. The Lord Jesus was troubled in spirit according to his humanity at the reality that he's going to the cross. But interestingly, here in chapter 14 at verse 1, it's not his trouble that he's looking to dissipate. It's not his trouble that he's trying to, to, to mitigate. It's not his trouble that he's trying to deal with. It's their trouble. He's always others-minded. He's always about serving. He's always about that love that he calls upon us to enact toward one another. That constant love, that self-sacrificing love, that love that is firm, that love that is sure, that love that values and prizes the other above itself. And so the Lord of glory exhibits here in verse 1, 1, uh, verse 1a, this idea that he conveyed to us in chapter 13 at verse 34. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And he exemplifies that. He, he demonstrates it, again, in his soul trouble, in his time of great travail, in his hardship and, and, and woe and suffering. He's not thinking about himself. He's not saying, well, I want you all to fawn all over me. I want you to make sure that these wretched, godless Romans don't, don't nail me to the cross. No, he's concerned about their trouble. He's concerned about their soul, and he wants to comfort them and encourage them and stabilize them. So he not only gives this statement concerning the reality of their trouble, but then he provides the remedy for that trouble. Notice in verse 1, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Now, both those clauses could be taken as indicatives, which means it's true, or as imperatives, which means it must be true. I think it's both imperative. You believe in God, believe also in me. In other words, what's the way to deal with your soul trouble? What's the way to deal with your anxiety? What's the way to deal with your depression? It's to believe in God. It's to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not suggesting you don't go out for a walk and get some sunshine and some fresh air and eat a good meal. Remember Elijah under the broom tree? He's ready to check out. Lord, I, I, I've done my best. The people are still incorrigible. They're still godless. They still got bail in their veins. What does the Lord do? The Lord says, get back up and get back out there, Elijah, and let those Baalists have it. No, he says, rest, rest a while. Have some food. These are good remedies and good tonics to appeal to a man who's in the, the depths of depression and despair. You see it with Jesus in the midst of a busy ministry with reference to his apostles. He says, come apart and rest a while. You see it in the very design and rhythm of God's created order. He gives us a day to rest. He gives us a day to Sabbath. He gives us a day to cease from our regular and ordinary labors so that we can rest in him. But with reference to the ultimate aim, it's to believe in God and to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the way to mitigate soul trouble in this present evil age. Now, I'm not preaching here as a guru. Just follow my example. These are lifelong lessons that we, by the Spirit, need to get a hold of. If we had learned these things 30 years ago, we would have saved a lot of worry. 
But alas, it doesn't always work that way. But this is Jesus' antidote or the remedy to soul trouble. And this isn't the only place you see this. Turn to the Gospel of Luke in Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. Look at how Jesus addresses the situation of anxiety. The, the issue of losing heart. Luke 18 at verse 1, then he spoke a parable to them that men always ought to pray and not lose heart, saying, what's the contrast to losing heart? Prayer. What's the contrast to prayer? Losing heart. What should you do so that you don't lose heart? You're right, you should pray. But then notice as well in the book of Philippians, the epistle of Paul to the church in Philippi, specifically at chapter four, same sort of an emphasis that if we are in trouble, if we are having trial, we ought to look outside of ourselves. In other words, the resources to mitigate your issues aren't, aren't, aren't usually to be found in yourself. Look outside of yourself to our blessed God. Notice in Philippians 4 at verse 6, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So again, it's not that there's no remedy provided for the soul trouble that we face. It's not that there's not a prescription given by our blessed physician to help mitigate the effects of life in a present evil age. It's just that we don't always use them. And so we need to listen to our beloved Savior when he says, you believe in God. You believe also in me. When he makes that statement, you believe in God, believe also in me. You know what he's also doing? He's highlighting himself alongside of the Father as the object of faith. This is a, an, a, a magnificent claim that isn't surprising in the gospel that starts off with the prologue. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. No one has seen God at any time except for the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. So we're sort of set up and we're sort of primed and we're sort of ready for this declaration. But if you just fell into this book at this point, who but one that has the same nature as the Father could ever arrogate to himself or suggest that he himself is the object of faith with the Father. It is a wonderful statement, again, attesting to the absolute glorious deity of our wonderful Savior. So the Word who became flesh, the only begotten Son of the Father, the object of saving faith. Thomas says that fact that he says, believe also in me, indicates that he is truly God. For although we are allowed to believe a human being or creature, notice the distinction. For although we are allowed to believe a human being or creature, we ought to believe in God alone. Therefore, we must believe in Christ as we believe in God. So Christ, right there with the Father, is the object of saving faith. But in this particular context, he's the object of comforting faith. If weak faith brings a sinner into peace with God, Stronger faith gives stability to the believer in God. So oftentimes, the problems that you and I face, the troubles that we undergo, it's not just a matter of fix those, but rather it's increase my faith, God. Remember many years ago, we received a prayer letter from China. And one of the things that they said is, don't pray that the, the, the burden be removed from us, but pray that our shoulders would be strong enough to carry the burden. I think that's a very good way to think of things, a very good approach to the difficulties that we face in this life. It's not just, God, get rid of this nasty person out of my life, but God, help me to trust in you in the midst of nasty people in my life. So the Lord Jesus gives them this exhortation to not let their hearts be troubled, believe in God, believe also in me. But then after this exhortation, he gives them this encouragement in verses two to three. And I think this is designed or calculated or, 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 or done so that they'll have more reason not to be troubled. 
It's not only that you not, ought not to be troubled, believe in God, believe also in me, but you need to consider what we have in store for you. You need to consider what the, the cross means. You need to consider what the hour means. You need to consider all of the benefits that accrue for those who by God's grace believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. So notice he speaks of his departure in verse two and then his return in verse three. Verse two, again, a, a, pass, a familiar passage of scripture. I hope nobody's surprised this morning. Wow, I never saw that before. I hope you've all seen this many, many times. Whenever I go to visit one of the older widows and I ask her, what do you want me to read from? It's always either Isaiah or John 14. And John 14 has brought worlds of comfort to worlds of believers throughout the ages. Look at what our Lord says, verse two, in my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. So what is he saying? My father, he's already talked about this in numerous times. He is the sent one from the father. He is the only begotten son of the father. He is the son, not by adoption, not by creation, but he's the son by nature. He has the same nature, the same essence as the father. This is a, an obvious reference to heaven. In my father's house are many mansions. So, just practically again, this isn't in the notes, but it's just come up in my own head here. If the mitigation of soul trouble is to believe in God, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, it is for the present and for the benefit that we now possess, but with a view to the future, with the understanding that we just sang at the outset of worship, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's our future condition. That's where we're heading. That ought to be a help, if not a complete removal of, at least a help to mitigate some of that soul trouble that we face now. 2 Corinthians 5.1, the apostle says, For we know that if our earthly house, this tent is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Jesus is obviously talking about heaven above. But notice the language in verse 2, In my father's house are many mansions. The word literally is room or dwelling. But that old King James rendering mansions is a good gloss. If you kind of pay attention to what's happening in terms of civil government, I, I can't prove this, but I get this idea that they want us living in huts, 300 square feet, if you're lucky. They want you eating bugs. They don't want you having cars. They want you having bikes, the whole spiel. In my house or my father's house or what? Many huts, many hovels, 300 square feet for you and your 10 people family to just knuckle under. In my father's house are many mansions. I think the idea is it's lavish, it's glorious. It is what God is. Remember when Solomon builds the temple? They spared no expense. You can hear people today, well, that was a lot of waste of money. You hear people like Judas, well, we shouldn't give that money, or she, she shouldn't have taken that perfume and, and, and poured it on the feet of the Savior. We should have taken that money and, and, and given it to the poor. Yes. That's certainly an application. But there are times when you're in the presence of the God of absolute glory and majesty, you spare no expense in the lavish amount of praise and adoration and worship you give to him. When Solomon built that temple, you know what he was telling the pagan nations around? Our Yahweh is supreme. He is no ghetto deity. He's no dunghill deity. He is worthy of gold hinges at the doors of his house. This is the God of absolute glory and majesty. So what do you think he does with reference to his blood-bought children? Okay, check in, sign on the dotted line, get your uniform, get your hovel, and just knuckle under. There's many mansions. And notice the many there. I'm gonna make the application at 14.6. 14.6 certainly teaches the exclusivity of the Christian religion. It does, and I've preached it that way many a time. It is contra-Jew, it is contra-Papist, it is contra-Muslim, it is contra-every religion that thinks that somehow all roads lead to heaven. So we emphasize and we maintain that no one can come to the Father except through me. But it's not only a, a verse that teaches the exclusivity of the Christian gospel, 
but the accessibility to the God of the Christian gospel through his only begotten son. Yes, it's exclusive, but yes, the emphasis is upon coming into the presence of the Father, getting your many mansions, knowing the goodness of our Lord forever and ever, world without end. So what Jesus does is he says, don't be troubled. Believe in God, believe in me also. And then to up the ante, I'm going to my father's house. Tomorrow when he goes to the cross, he's going to die. He's going to be put in that tomb. And then he's going to be raised again. And then he's going to ascend on high. And the preparation, brethren, is probably not him going back to sweep, him going back to clean the garage, him going back to put, you know, chocolates on your pillow so that when you arrive, you have a nice warm experience. The preparation is the cross. How does he go to prepare a place for them? It's through his bloodshed. How does he go to prepare a place for them? It's through his resurrection. How does he go to prepare a place for them? It's his ascension on high. It's the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ that is the means of preparation for their access and that reception of the many mansions that the Father has for his beloved children. It really does convey a wonderful image in terms of God's lavishness, God's graciousness, and God's goodness to the many who enter into his presence. So notice, the Lord then says, or highlights there at the end of the verse, I go to prepare a place for you. Remember that hell is a prepared place as well. Matthew 25, 41, they're cast into hell, which was prepared for the devil and his angels. Acts 1, 25, the commentary concerning Judas and his final disposition. Where does Judas go? He goes to his own place. So idea being is that we will be visited with judgment consistent with our sin, lest we by grace believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. So he speaks to them concerning this departure, but then notice his return in verse three. And, and dare I say for the Christian church, we have a very, very simple doctrine of the last times. It's right here. He goes and he comes back. You, you, you mean the, 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 all these other, he goes and he comes back. This, this is as clear eschatology as you're gonna get in the Bible. Well, where's the millennium? Where's the antichrist? Where's the devil? Well, this much we know, he goes and he comes back. He goes having accomplished his work on their behalf and then he comes back to fetch them and bring them to those mansions of glory in heaven above. If your eschatology is that eschatology, you are consistent with the testimony of the church throughout its ages. We believe in the judgment. We believe in the resurrection of the dead. And our Lord Jesus outlines here, along with Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 28, the simplicity of biblical eschatology. Jesus leaves and Jesus comes back. If that's all you know relative to eschatology, you know a lot because that's absolutely crucial to understand. So notice he talks about his return in verse three. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am there you may be also. So the departure of Jesus through the cross to the father's house and that preparation that he affects by his own work, the reality is, is that he's coming back again in glory to judge the living and the dead. Notice in verse three, and if I come again, and, and I think that this is what makes heaven heaven and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Paul picks up on this in 1 Thessalonians 4. At verse 17, he says, Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. What makes heaven heaven? Is it the pearly gates? Is it the golden streets? Is it all the jewels? Is it is all the stuff that bedazzles? It's Jesus. He's the darling of heaven. You will be with me. That's what he conveys. In light of let not your heart be troubled, he is really upping the ante as to why your heart ought not to be troubled. In my father's house are many mansions. You're going to be in one of those. As well, it's going to be the case that you are with me. 
that you are always in the presence of the Lord God Most High. Look back at John chapter 12, specifically at verse 26. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. And then again in 1724. 1724, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. Turn to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapters 21 and 22. We won't go through everything, but just a couple of things to note. Revelation chapter 21, specifically. You, you, you know, quick reminder, 30 second reminder about what the Bible's about. We talked about this a little bit on Wednesday night. Is the Bible about the Daniel diet? No. Is the Bible about how you deal with your personal giants? No. Is the Bible about a billion other things preachers have told you it's about? No. What's the Bible about? God's glory in the salvation of sinners through Jesus Christ. You know what that ultimately ends with? God and his people dwelling together. In fact, one of the great themes in Holy Scripture is that, dwelling together. It's no accident that John 1.14 speaks of the incarnation in that language. The word became flesh and did what? He dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us. When you go to redemptive history, you look at Genesis chapters 1, and 1 to 3. Do you know what the glory of God manifested there is? It's communion with his creatures. It's the fact that God walked among them in the cool of the day. The great issue there was the forfeit of that communion. Obviously, the rebellion against God, the plunge into sin. What did they lose? They lost that nearness of God. But God orchestrated a way to bring that nearness back, to bring that communion. He showed that he was going to do this by the tabernacle. He wants Israel to make this sort of mobile tent that they can take out into the wilderness. Why? So that they can meet with God out there. And then once they get established in the promised land, what are the instructions? Well, Solomon, I want you to build this temple. Why? So we can best the pagans around us? Well, that too, but so that we can commune with Yahweh. It's all about God and his people dwelling together. It's all about temple. It's all about union. It's all about communion. And that's what Christ is promising. If I depart, I'm going to prepare, and then I'm going to come back, and I'm going to take you, and we're going to go up, and we're going to commune. Notice in Revelation 21, specifically at verse 22. But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Everything forfeit by Adam is secured for us by the last Adam. What we lost in Adam the first, we gain in Adam the last. We get communion. We get nearness. We get eternal bliss. And this is what Jesus is speaking concerning in John's gospel. To comfort the disciples in the upper room. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. Also, the Geneva Bible says Christ went not away from us to the end to forsake us, but rather that he might at length take us up with him into heaven. So when he announces in verse 33, chapter 13, little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, where I'm going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, that's probably the primary reason they're troubled. What is he saying now? It's to your benefit that I go. It's for your glory that I go. It's for your salvation that I go. I'm doing this for you. Greater love has no man than that he lays down his life for his friends. This is what Christ came to do, to secure the salvation of a great multitude that no man can number. So that's the preparation of heaven for the disciples. Let's look then secondly at the access to heaven through the Lord. Notice the Lord affirms what he has said in verse 4. He, he underscores it. He seals the deal. He, he confirms it. He affirms it. Notice in verse 4. He says, and where I go, you know, and the way you know. So there's a where and a way here. There's a where and a way that's going to come up in their confusion 
and it's going to come up in his response to their confusion. So think where and when. Well, notice what he says specifically here in verse 4. He says, and where I go, you know, and the way you know. Now, they should have known of the cross, because as I've said, he's taught them or told them on many occasions. It's very specific in Matthew 16, Matthew 17, Matthew 20. It's specific here in John's gospel as well, John 12. And I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men to myself. He knows and he has communicated that the hour is upon him. So he is able to say to them with this affirmation or this certainty, and where I go, you know. And then he mentions, and the way you know. So again, where and way. Now note the confusion of the disciples. Oh no, they'd never be confused. Yes, they were confused often. That they're representative of us, brethren. We, we shouldn't read this and say, I, don't, I can't believe those guys didn't get this. How many things don't we get in light of a, of a whole Bible, in light of sermon audio, in light of constant preaching and teaching and instruction and good books? How, how many times are we brought to this place to admit our confusion? Well, we don't usually admit it. We just continue confused and everybody else sees it, but we don't see it. It's kind of that bad breath thing. Bad breath is one of those things that everybody knows you have, but you don't know you have. So when it comes to this confusion, Thomas is speaking as one of the disciples. He says, we, and again, it's a where and a way issue. Notice in verse five, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going and how can we know the way? Thomas shows up in uh, John 11 as one who's willing to die with Jesus. Then he shows up in John 20, 28, as the one who absented himself from that first corporate worship service when Jesus was present. Remember when the disciples saw Thomas? They said, Thomas, basically, you should have been here. If I could read between the lines, that's what they said. Oh, we've seen the Lord. What's the implication? Thomas, you should have been there. He shouldn't have missed. Maybe they weren't that vindictive. I'm, I'm probably projecting here. But uh, he's, he is the man that is the greatest skeptic. And, and not just skeptic, we think of a skeptic saying, well, you know, I'm not really sure. No, Thomas says, unless, 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 I will certainly not believe. You might meet a skeptic. Somebody, I just don't know. I haven't really heard much about Christianity. They're, just, they're kind of agnostic. That's not really Thomas in John 20. Thomas is demanding evidence to satisfy his own mind. Thomas is saying that if I don't see the evidence, then I'm certainly not going to believe. And what does Jesus do? Jesus gently reproves him. He chides him. You've seen and you believe. Blessed are those who believe even though they haven't seen. So this Thomas is a zealous, zealous fellow. It's not always a zeal according to knowledge. We read about zeal in the last hour in terms of J.C. Ryle. We always got to make sure that our zeal is tempered by knowledge. Because this willingness to go die for Jesus, and we're not willing to live for Jesus, sounds like a zeal without knowledge. And when Thomas is here, he is expressing the sentiment of the other disciples. We, we don't know the where. We don't know the way. So notice what Jesus responds in this declaration. He first starts with the way, and then he goes to the, to the where. But notice with reference to the way, verse 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth and the life. That's the way. The where is no one comes to the Father except through me. So let's just take a couple of minutes to unpack this. First, this is another I am statement with a predicate. There have been several in the gospel. There are seven total. Jesus says in John 6, I am the bread of life. John 8 and 9, I am the light of the world. John 10, I am the door of the sheep. John 10, I am the good shepherd. John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. John, 6, uh, uh, John uh, 14, rather, the way, the truth, and the life. And then there's one final one in chapter 15, I am the true vine. So what does he mean here? Remember, he's talking about his going to the cross, his departure in that violent, bloody, horrible way is going to be the grounds upon which he enters into heaven to prepare for them mansions above. 
And it is from that vantage point that he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, to collect his bride and bring her up into that place where they are always present with the Lord forever. That place where there is no physical structure. There's no temple there. Why? Because God and the Lamb are its temple. Communion and access and, and privilege will all be completely uh, uh, received and, and, and consummated in that glorious state. So notice what Jesus says here. He says three things concerning himself. First of all, he says, I am the way. Now the way is in connection with the where. He's the way to the Father. We saw that in our studies in the book of Ephesians, chapter uh, 2, verses 18 and 22. By the Spirit, through the Son, we come to the Father. In fact, look at the book of Hebrews, specifically in Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, we get the practical section after having uh, pronounced or, or, or rather ex uh, exegeted the person of Christ as priest. In Hebrews 10, 19, the apostle gets very practical. And notice what he says, therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, notice by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. And having, a, uh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So when we look at Jesus' statement in John 14, 6, when he says, I am the way, the way to the Father is Jesus Christ, the Son. That's it. That's what we all need to know. That's what we all need to learn. There's one true and living God. There's one God who made the world. There's one God who governs the world. There is one God who is overall, that is to be worshiped, that is to be glorified, that is to be honored, that is to be praised. But because of our sin and because of our rebellion and because of our corruption in Adam, we don't honor him the way we ought. We don't praise him the way we ought. We don't worship him the way we ought. Rather, we seek out other things. We go after the creature, the things that he has made to be of service, to be of benefit and to be help, of help. We turn those into idols and we pant after them. We lust after them. We, we go after the good things that God has given to be enjoyed. We make those God. We find our comfort there. Let not your heart be troubled. What does man in sin do to try to mitigate the trouble? He seeks out many devices. We don't like living with trouble, do we? And for the most part, we'll try to find ways to deal with that trouble. Well, there's one God-sanctioned and one God-approved way, and that's him and his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything else will only compound the trouble. Well, I know I'll just go drink this, or I'll go smoke this, or I'll go do this, and all my problems will go away. Is that really how it works out? I know what I'll do, I'll amass wealth, I'll pile up money and all my troubles will go away. Is that really how it happens? No. You know it as well as I do. Those things are vanity. Those things are folly. Again, good things at times God gives to be enjoyed by the creature. But when we worship and serve them and we neglect the creator, God overall, then we've got more trouble than we ever even imagined. So with reference to our beloved Christ, he is the way. His incarnation, his life of obedience, his death is a satisfaction for sins, his resurrection from the dead. And notice, he doesn't just show the way. He is the way. You, you see that? I can show you the way. The way is the cross. The way is faith in Jesus. The way is looking to him and living. He, he is the way. Isn't it wonderful how in him is personified the various benefits that we receive? In Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 2, there was a man by the name of Simeon. He was an old man, and he's at the temple because the Lord or the Spirit had said, you're going to see the Lord's Christ before you die. And we know the, the story. The Lord's Christ comes with his parents to be circumcised on the eighth day. So we read, when, when uh, Mary walks in with this little baby, I've always tried to picture this in my mind's eye. You mothers can be a, a lot like a, a mama bear, and that's good. God made you that way. Defend that baby. Defend that child. Fathers, same thing. You, you take out whatever threat is there launched against your spawn. That, that's your job. You had one job. You, you protect them. I just try to imagine the scene when Simeon marches over to Mary and takes the babe out of her, out of her arms. 
I don't get that she tried to claw his eyes out. There must have been something else going on in the spirit, you know, with reference to her. But, but listen to what he says when he takes the babe. Verse 27, so he came by the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. And then notice in verse 30, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Not just the way of salvation, but the salvation of God is in the person and the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. So when he says, I am the way. Have you noticed in the preaching of our Lord Jesus in the gospel records that he preaches the kingdom of God? That's the way he announces his ministry. Matthew 4, 17, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He teaches in Matthew 13, parables concerning what? The kingdom. He talks about the kingdom a lot. After his death, after his resurrection, after his ascension on high, the apostolic preaching in the book of Acts isn't about the kingdom, it is, but it's about the Christ. In other words, the way becomes the emphasis instead of the, the where. Not that the where is unimportant, but the way now has dominated everything. In fact, one man makes this observation. He says, the presentation of Christ to men had been going forward and the scheme on which it is set before us in the gospel collection marks the gradual manner in which the eye, looking for the kingdom, came to be fixed on the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. All is founded on the Old Testament expectation of a kingdom of God. That's why Jesus comes and he preaches the kingdom of God. But, and he's commenting now on the apostolic preaching of Christ, but it is now explained that that expectation is fulfilled in the person of Jesus. So not that Jesus doesn't do that. He preaches the kingdom. He preaches the where, but gradually the emphasis is becoming on the way. It's Christ. It's the way. It's the salvation of God that is uppermost. So that when Peter falls into the, 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 the pathway of that Ethiopian eunuch, and the eunuch's reading Isaiah the prophet, and Philip says, do you know what you're reading? He said, I'm not, I'm not really sure. I, I need somebody to explain it for me. What happens? From this scripture, he preached what? Jesus. Uh, Acts chapter 10, to him, all the prophets give witness that whoever believes in his name will receive the forgiveness of sins. This is the, the, the grand termination of redemptive uh, history. It is in the person of Christ. And he says as much here, I am the way, but he doesn't stop. Notice he goes on and says, I am the truth. He is the truth, brethren. This is a great thing for living in a day and age like we do. There's a lot of non-truth out there. There's a lot, and, and I know it's like that in the first century. We just get access to it, you know, immediately on, you know, five different sites. We're just glutted with misinformation and disinformation. Only they don't think it's misinformation and disinformation. That's the big crime today, misinformation and disinformation. And that, that's our Bibles, right? This new Bill 367. You don't think it's Dr. Seuss they want to rid the society of. It's the word of the living God. Hate crime legislation typically targets the Bible. Let's not play games. That's what it's about. So, so that we have the truth is a good thing. That we have the truth and its embodiment in our Lord Jesus Christ is a good thing. We're not left to ourselves. We're not left on our own. I am the way, he says, and I am the truth. In other words, everything that Jesus has been telling his disciples is, is true. It's vera uh, 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 he's got veracity. He's faithful. He is going to bring to pass everything that he has said, specifically in verses 2 and 3. Yes, I'm going to depart in a little while, but don't let your hearts be troubled. In fact, know that my departure means access to the Father, preparation of the mansions, and then I'm going to return to you again in glory to bring you to where I am. Brethren, that truth is what we desperately need in a sinful and godless age. And again, not unique to us. They lived in a situation very similar. But then notice he says he is the life. 
And this is a recurring theme in John's gospel. According to the prologue, in him was life, 1-4. He has life in himself, 5-26. He has the words of eternal life in 6-68. Remember all those would-be disciples fall away? And then Jesus looks at his inner sanctum. He looks at his 12 and he says, do you also want to depart? And Simon Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. In other words, he is the way, the truth, and the life. Notice as well, he is true God and eternal life, according to 1 John 5, verse 20. He gives life abundantly, according to John 10 and verse 10. And as well, at the gravesite of Lazarus, we learn he is the resurrection and the life. And so when it comes to this blessed one, he is the way to the Father, he is the truth concerning the Father, and he is the life that we need desperately. And with reference to that, he then ends on the where. So I am the way, the truth, and the life, then notice the where. No one comes to the Father except through me. And that's it. That, that's the essence of our religion, isn't it? What's different about you Christians? Well, we teach one way of salvation. It's through God's grace, faith in Jesus Christ. That's it. That's what we have that is unique. I mean, there's a lot attached to that, to be sure. Uh, blood atonement, forgiveness of sins, the imputed righteousness of Jesus. It's a whole myriad of blessings and, and good things accrued by our Savior. But in essence, brethren, that's what distinguishes us. We're not an all roads lead to Rome sort of a religion. You know, you just do your best. You pull up your bootstraps. You stop doing those things and everything's going to be okay. No, you're wicked. You're sinful. Just like me. We deserve God's wrath and curse both in this life and that which is to come. If we access the Father, it is because of the cross. If we come to the Father, it's because of his blood. If we come to the Father, it's because of the fact that he is the way, the truth, and the life. So he ends on that particular note. He speaks of the way, he speaks of the where, and as I mentioned previously, it's not only the exclusivity of the, of the gospel of Jesus, but the accessibility to the Father through the Son. So I think it's easy to read passages like this and says, no one comes to the Father except through me. Oh, that means it's just such this narrow little window. No, that's not what it means at all. Why did we think that's what it meant? Because we don't read Revelation. We don't read that there's men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. We don't read that in that new Jerusalem, according to Revelation 7, there's a great multitude that no man can number. We don't read Matthew's gospel when Jesus says that this is my blood in the new covenant, which is shed for the remission of sins of many. We don't read that in my father's house are many mansions. So yes, see the exclusivity in John 14, 6, but brethren, as well, you know, amplify the accessibility of the Father through the Son. That's our message to a lost and dying world. That's my encouragement to anybody here this morning that is dead in their trespasses and sins. Come to the way, the one who is truth, the one who gives life freely by his grace for his glory with the sure promise that one day you're not going to be in this cesspool of sin. You're not going to have to deal with the remaining corruption that so easily entices us. You're going to be in Emmanuel's land. You're going to be with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. You're going to be with the, the, the spirits of just men made perfect. You're going to be in that blessed state wherein there is no unrighteousness wherein God is all in all. That's the promise of our Lord Jesus in John 14, 1 to 6, to everyone and anyone who believes on him. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. In conclusion, one, comfort of the church. We need to be comforted in these trying times. And again, the way of comfort, yeah, get your exercise, diet, sleep, all those things. As you get older, kids, you start learning. Yeah, I guess my mom was right. I should have taken naps more. There, there is that difficulty to even secure a good night of sleep as you get a bit older. So, you know, get it while you can. All that's good. Take care of the outer man. You've heard me preach on depression before. Before you get to the spiritual ABCs, there's some physical ABCs. If you're not eating properly, you're not sleeping well, you're not exercising, you're probably not going to feel well. I'm not a doctor or the son of a doctor, but general revelation certainly seems to alight in that direction. But as well, spiritually, read your Bibles, pray, 
seek God. Grow in the understanding of our blessed Lord. Know scripture. Hide it in your heart like the psalmist so that I might not sin against you. The word of God is valuable. We prize it. We praise it. The exercise of faith is the antidote to trouble. Cyril of Alexandria said, an untroubled mind is a great help to courage. It's interesting because this passage and tonight's passage go hand in glove. Tonight's the whole armor of God. Ephesians chapter 6, 10, 10 and following. What do you think Paul wants for the Christian church? Just, you know, lay down, kowtow, and just get walked all over. You just let the devil have his way with you. There's a devil out there. He's roaring about like a roaring, roaming lion. He's seeking whom he may devour. You know, just hide from him and perhaps you won't get bit. That's not Paul's attitude. Paul's not down with sort of a low-T approach to ecclesiology or gospel propagation. Be strong. Stand firm in the power of the might of God Most High. And when it comes to this soul trouble, vanquish it by faith. Listen again to Cyril. Faith then is a weapon whose blade is stout and broad. It drives away cowardice that comes from thinking about possible suffering. And it renders the darts of the wicked utterly ineffective and utterly useless in their temptations. He's right. He's absolutely positively right. Just like Paul's right in Philippians 4. It's like Jesus is right in Luke 18. Very often the remedy for our problem, it's right there. We don't always access it. Let not your heart be troubled, brethren. Believe in God, believe also in Jesus. The stability of our spiritual blessings through our Lord Jesus Christ are bound up in faith. Again, weak faith brings a sinner into peace with God. A bit of a stronger faith stabilizes the believer against the onslaughts of life. That's a good thing. So read, pray, buck up, attend church, and seek by God's grace to grow in these things. And then the glorious expectation of life in the Father's house and being in the presence of the Lord forever. At some point, brethren, I think you ought to just adopt the mindset, and this may sound fatalistic. I don't think it is. Okay, whatever they throw at me, I'm going to persevere because I don't think that's fatalistic. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to persevere. Why? Because my end is in glory. See, it's just cost analysis. It's risk reward. What are you going to do to me? Take from me the prize of Jesus Christ? I can't do it. Once you're in the hand of God most high, there's nobody who can pluck you out. There's nobody who can snatch you. Shared one time, it was either a Sunday morning or Wednesday night. My father had a piece of wisdom that I never quite understood. He said, they can kill you, but they can't eat you. Took me several years to realize, yeah, they can. There's just that many sick and twisted people. And I don't know what that sort of wisdom nugget was calculated to promote, but it perplexed me. But in terms of our nuggets of wisdom, we have glory in our future. Whatever this world throws at us, whatever issues we got to deal with or contend with, whatever machinations the civil authorities have down the road, ultimately, brethren, we will be where he is. He will receive us to himself and we will dwell in that place where God and the Lamb are the temple. And let us end on a great consideration of that Lamb. He is the way. You need salvation, it's through Jesus. He is the truth. You need a sure word, it's in the scriptures. And he is life. The only antidote, the only corrective, the only remedy to our spiritual death is the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and the life that he freely gives. Well, let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for our Lord Jesus, the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. And we bless you that by your grace, we've been able to access the Father through the Son. And we are confident that as this gospel goes forth today, it will run swiftly and it will be glorified and it will accomplish the purpose for which you sent it. And we pray even in our own midst, both young and old, would come to our Lord Jesus Christ in faith and know the joy of being found in him. And we ask through Christ our Lord. Amen.